Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. Hi, I'm Tess Novotny, and I'm a producer for Colorado Edition. This show and KUNC, the station behind it, aren't for one type of person. No matter what your political leanings, economic status, race, gender, or religion, you'll learn something new every time you turn on the radio. We work to bring you fresh perspectives from across Colorado, challenging the status quo and deepening your understanding of life in the centennial state. That's why you started listening. You wanted a source for news that was unaffected by the partisanship and spin of most mainstream news these days. Another difference between KUNC and those other sources for news is how it's funded, by you. You ensure Colorado Edition can continue to build a foundation of trustworthy news with your sustaining membership. If you join as a sustaining member at just $12 a month, you'll receive a t-shirt commemorating 50 years of NPR on KUNC. Give now at KUNC.org or 800-443-5862. Now, here's today's show. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. This year's Summer Olympics highlighted the importance of mental health and resilience for athletes. On today's show, we speak with a Denver sports psychologist about what we can learn from their mindset. And we hear about a group of women who broke through early gender barriers in broadcast journalism. They really helped define the sound as NPR was taking hold across the nation. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. When U.S. gymnast Simone Biles announced her withdrawal from the team and all-around competitions at the Olympics earlier this year, many were shocked to see the defending gold medalist step down at the top of her game, especially because she wasn't suffering from a physical injury, but rather a mental health concern. While this may have surprised fans and spectators, athletes grappling with their mental health sounded all too familiar to Denver sports and performance psychologist Dr. Steve Portenga. Portenga helps professional athletes develop a positive performance mindset and even wrote the APA definition of performance psychology. I spoke with him back in August. I think a lot of people assume that professional athletes are these kind of superhuman beings who are unfazed by anything, but that's not the case, of course. What are some examples of the kinds of stresses and pressures that they're under that can really impact their well-being? I think some people will be surprised that the stresses and pressures they face are pretty typical for anyone in a high-performance work environment. I think pressure really starts from how anyone in particular bases their identity. How do they define what constitutes a success, what makes up a failure, and the consequences of succeeding or failing? And everyone is very different in that. Some athletes making an Olympics might be a huge success. Other athletes, anything other than gold would be a huge failure. Were you surprised when Simone Biles withdrew? How did you react? I don't know Simone personally, so I wasn't sure how to take what she was going through. 
But the fact that an athlete at the Olympics would do something like that is both a little bit surprising and not. The the pressure is tremendous there. When I was in the London Olympics, a number of athletes that didn't want anything to do with me in the four years leading up to that, at times that pressure got beyond what they knew how to handle and needed someone to talk to, to confide in. But I was very shocked that someone of her profile would do so, so publicly. And I think that's a wonderful change to be able to start this ongoing conversation. We know mental health isn't just about emotional well-being, but really, you know, psychological well-being. When an athlete is feeling stressed or when they're feeling like they can't perform, what's actually happening in their brains? I think a lot of people are very well aware of the phrase mind-body connection. I don't think many people really understand just how intimately they are connected. Whenever we have an emotional response, we have a physiological response and vice versa. And with most people, when they have that reaction, uh, they can go about their days. The, the changes physiologically may not hinder their ability to sit at their desk and type. But as an elite athlete, particularly in a sport like gymnastics, where requirements from a motor control standpoint are off the charts, any small little hindrance in their nervous system's ability to process information and fire can be the difference between success or hurting yourself. At the Olympics this year, as with any sporting event during this pandemic, athletes didn't have the same support from family or fans in the crowds. Is this something that overall impacts performance of athletes? I think there were a lot of athletes that had to prepare differently for not having their typical support systems available in Tokyo. The ones that probably thought through it well enough ahead of time to prepare for that likely did better than the athletes who didn't really have a plan in place. A lot of times they'll rely on someone on the outside to recognize what's going on and to say something. And it's very comforting for an athlete to have that outside person there. And when you don't have that person there that you typically rely on, all of a sudden you're responsible yourself and your ability to be self-aware and self-monitor and self-reflect become crucial. Athletes train with individual coaches often during the four-year period leading up to the Olympics. And the coaches at the Olympics are not necessarily coaches that they're used to. And oftentimes those coaches are more chaperones to make sure the athletes get to the right place at the right time than actually being involved in technical coaching. With that in mind, the 2020 Summer Olympics just wrapped up, but the 2022 Winter Olympics aren't too far away. What changes can be made to better prioritize and understand athlete mental health for the Winter Games? I think that is a very necessary and very complicated question. On a small level, athletes need to incorporate mental health into their planning for the next couple of years. What are some of the things that may create pressure, some of the situations that are likely to lead to challenges? And think ahead for ideally, how can we diffuse that, not have it have as much pressure in the first place? But when that pressure is there, what are we going to do with it? Uh, I think a big part of that goes back to what we talked about in terms of physiology, not having a uh, very overactive stress response, training the body and the nervous system to be able to handle that increased pressure. The pressure and the energy at the Olympics is levels above anything else. I remember walking into the Olympic Stadium in London for the first time and the hairs all over my arms were literally just standing on end because of the energy there that you could feel. And if you have a very crystal clear plan from a uh, motor perspective, then you can channel that energy and use it. As casual fans or spectators, I think we're interested in understanding and empathizing with these wonderful athletes that we're cheering on. So how can we do a better job of that? 
what I work with a lot of athletes is trying to have them realize that they're more than just an athlete, that there's enough going on in their life that they value to be able to have them have some foundation of identity to protect against some of the things that may not go their way. One of the big problems that I think is very unique about the world of sport is almost everything is quantifiable and everything is public. You know, for almost every athlete, you can look up their stats, you can see how they perform. And unfortunately, it's easy for athletes to put a lot of their identity on their performance because a lot of other people do that to them. I've absolutely seen times where someone is talking to a very successful athlete and will stop mid-conversation to go talk to an athlete that's more successful, purely from a sport performance. And so a lot of athletes get told sometimes by people close to them that their value as a person is tied to their athletic performance. So it's easy for them to internalize that, unfortunately. That was sports and performance psychologist, Dr. Steve Portenga. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for continuing the conversation. NPR celebrates its 50th anniversary this year, and many of us are reflecting on the impact that public radio has had on journalism, including the way it helped open the field of broadcast journalism to women. And this year is a great time to remember and celebrate the contributions of four women who were there in the earliest days of NPR, the so-named Founding Mothers. They charted new trails, opened doors, left ladders up behind them for other women to climb, and they're part of broadcast history. Lisa Napoli is a journalist and the author of Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, a book about the founding mothers. I talked with her in May when the book came out. You almost don't have to say their last names, but I will. Susan Stamberg, Linda Wertheimer, Nina Totenberg, Koki Roberts. Why are they referred to as the founding mothers? Well, Susan Stamberg really is the founding mother because she was the first female co-host of All Things Considered about a year or so after it started in 1972 is when she went on the air. But she generously extended it to the other women whose names you just mentioned, because all four of them really were pioneers in the 1970s as NPR was coming up. And they really helped define the sound as NPR was taking hold across the nation. Of course, there were many people behind the scenes, but those women defined the sound. So Susan just sort of cheekily started calling them that. The story of their careers really begins in the early 60s and then, of course, continues through the 70s um, with NPR. What was the landscape of broadcast media like? It was incredibly hard for women to get jobs at any level in the media, uh, particularly if they wanted their own byline or to do what you do, have your voice on the radio. It just wasn't allowed. Most of media at that point, and by media, we mean at that point, television news and some limited radio news was controlled and fronted by men, usually white men. Uh, it was really difficult for women generally. It wasn't just in broadcasting. I mean, this was a time when ads were just beginning to not be segregated, black, white, men, women. If, if a woman got married, it was very difficult for her to factor her income into a mortgage application, say, or to get her name on a bank account if she wasn't married, because it was seen that women were always going to go get pregnant and, and leave their jobs or be told to leave their jobs. So the world was just completely different. And that was reflected in the media that we consumed. And then along came National Public Radio, which set out to 
do things a little differently. It was kind of chartered with this mission to serve uh, people whose needs were woefully underrepresented by commercial broadcasting, as you write. Um, That principle extended to who they hired to work there. Um, Was that an intentional part of their thinking to hire women? Yes. And and when we say they, we have to say that it was a man named Bill Seemering, who was an incredibly progressive person. All of public radio was nothing like we know of it today. It was very small. Most stations had tiny budgets. Most of the people who worked there were volunteers. So NPR, the creation of it in 1970 and the launch of it in 1971, created a whole new ecosystem. And this fellow, Bill Seemering, basically didn't want people from fancy corners of the universe, nor did he want people who were the same sorts of people you'd hear everywhere else. He decidedly wanted to create something that was different. So one great story of that is Linda Wertheimer walked in the door and she'd gone to Wellesley. And when he saw that, he was very concerned. He didn't want to hire somebody who'd gone to this rarefied East Coast school. But when she explained that she was in fact on scholarship at Wellesley and that her parents were grocers back in Carlsbad, New Mexico, go. He was on board. I have to ask, when the voices of these women first hit the airwaves, how were they received? Well, it was very unusual to hear a woman on the radio who was doing something other than talking about women's news, society, gossip, weddings and gowns and lunches and stuff like that. So to hear a woman, especially in a smaller, more remote part of the country, who had a New York accent, as Susan Stamberg did, and who laughed with abandon, that wasn't what broadcasters did. Broadcasters sounded like this. All of a sudden, you had people who sounded like us having a conversation. And that was a marvel. And some people, to your point, were not so thrilled about that. That was not what they were used to. Oh my God, women are talking. Oh, and they're talking about important stuff. Oh, that's terrible. But of course, these women, uh, Susan the chief among them were the people who got people used to the idea that women could have intelligent conversations on the radio about important subjects. You write about Cokie Roberts, who became just an indispensable figure in politics, both on radio and TV and books, kind of normalized just women talking about politics, like around the dinner table. People would come up to her on the street and say, I've never heard women talk about these subjects before. And of course, for Koki, it was baked into her. Both her mother and her father were were lawmakers in Congress. And so it wasn't alien for her. It was just perfectly natural. But when people would come up to her on the street, men and women, and say, I've never heard women speak like this, it's really hard for us to imagine that that was true not very long ago, but it was. There were some women, and I write about them in the book, who did come before Susan and Linda, Nina, and Koki, they were there, but they were few and far between. So in our lifetime, the idea that Koki was given a seat at the table, both on radio and on television with The Brinkley Show, was spectacular. It was groundbreaking. What was it like for these four women to, to start coming up together and rising in this traditionally male-dominated field? It was such a startup mentality. It was such a scrappy place, NPR, at that time. And there were so few people that nobody had the time to discriminate. Once you walked in the door, and, and Susan and, and Linda both walked in the door before it went on the air, not in on-air jobs. But what they saw was, whoa, we only have five reporters. We better contribute. And they wanted to contribute. 
contribute. So in their spare time, they picked up the microphone and did stories and got on the air that way. So, you know, it was underfunded, but it was a wonderful startup where anybody who's worked in one knows it's both really, really hard, but also really gratifying because it's got that let's put on a show mentality. We're all in it together and we'll all do whatever we need to do to get the program out there every day. Linda made herself the consumer correspondent because that was a big push in the 70s. And then from there, she started studying up on Congress uh, and learned so much about it that she was able to go into Congress and, and report. And the men at first, you know, they might call her little lady uh, and she would say, hey, big senator. And she'd playfully push back at them. And, uh, you know, she showed she knew her stuff. And that's really, in the end, what mattered and what got them the acceptance. I think it's important to note that all of the founding mothers are white women. Uh, In a way, it sort of plays into the NPR stereotype that the audience is built of white, wine-drinking, tote-bag-using liberals. Um, Why were none of the founding mothers women of color? And has NPR done things since then to try to diversify? To the latter question, yes. I'm not affiliated with NPR, so I can only say that as an observer, I notice that there is a push. However, as far as the first four women, I can say that what happened is that the very beginning, that founding father, Bill Seemering, really dearly wanted to make sure he didn't have a homogenous staff who walked in the door were people who were sadly mostly white because that's how media worked back then. There wasn't a recruitment effort. It wasn't an HR effort. It was just who knew who, who came in and who got the job. And Bill did try to hire as a co-anchor, a black man, but that man didn't want to give up his job at ABC, which was a really good job to come work for this untested place. So I always think in that in the face of the question you just asked me, if that hadn't been the case, how different the scene would have been set. But it really is, it's not a failing of NPR as much as it is a failing of our society and a gradual change in our society, both with women and with race. Lisa Napoli is the author of Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for all your thoughtful questions. That's our show for today. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. 